Our reading from the New Testament this morning is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 13 to 36. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. It's something of a change of focus for the book, and one wonders why Paul brings it out at this point, because it is such an abrupt change. Why why does Paul say this? Its its meaning is fairly obvious. It has to do with living in a Christian community. You are the people of God, living together as the family of God. But as anyone here who is an adult knows, you can have some very dysfunctional families. You can have families that bite and devour one another. We've all seen it, if we haven't been in them, and some of us have been in them. Paul says, don't do that. Don't be involved in a uh, community where you bite and devour one another. What brings it up? Well, there's a couple of possible answers, and they're not necessarily uh, exclusive. Um, The first one is that that's what happens when you have a religion based on human activity, based on human power, based on the power of man. The entire book of Galatians is about 
trusting the Lord, not trusting in your moral goodness. And quite frankly, a religion of human effort, a religion of, of human activity, produces just this kind of environment. The world mocks what it calls fundamentalists, and when it uses the term fundamentalists, uh, they're basically saying anyone who has the termidity to believe that God exists. But the term fundamentalist is used in various contexts by various people, and uh, the caricature the world has made of it comes out of a stereotype, but the stereotype has a little bit of truth to it. A fundamentalist can mean someone who is Arminian, Wesleyan, works righteousness kind of, kind of Christian. When you have a congregation of people like that, I will lay you money. I'll be glad to lay odds. That's not a happy place. I have never seen a congregation where works righteousness, depending upon your efforts, has produced a joyful, spiritual, thankful community. Now, I'm only speaking from my anecdotal evidence. You might know some church out there that is very Wesleyan type oriented and they're just absolutely loving and wonderful and they, they, it's a great place to be but I have never experienced it my experience has been when you have an emphasis on works righteousness you end up with a very unhappy place where people do tend to bite and devour one another and it only makes sense because in works righteousness religion Religion becomes, by its nature, something of a competition. By my own hand, I will pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will improve myself by my own efforts. Oh, look, I'm doing that better than you are. Or, you're doing it better than me, and I'm envious. And Paul even uses the concept of envy here at the end of the passage let us not be envying of one another. That seems to fit what I'm talking about. Works righteousness is competition. It doesn't produce love among believers. It produces backbiting, slander, fighting, contentions. And, and what the Judaizers want is that. They want a religion where men improve themselves and become acceptable to God by following the law. Taking a step away from this, I think it is a principle that applies to any sort of heresy. Only in recent years have I encountered, really, uh, what would be considered conservative heresies. I have not grown up on the edge of Armenian Wesleyanism. I've not grown up on the edge of holiness, Pentecostalism, that really hasn't been my experience. My entire religious experience has been on the edge of liberalism, uh, mainline Presbyterianism, Methodism. That, that was the world I grew up in. And the experience of the churches I grew up in 
was that they were also this way. And they would tell you, we are, we are not works righteousness. We are totally not that. We are liberal. And liberalism allows any man to walk any way he wants. We're not judgmental. Uh, you can believe any way that you feel led to believe, and you be part of this congregation. But growing up in those churches, they were places of contention and backbiting and bad feeling. They were exactly what Paul describes here. Because in actuality, whether you have works righteousness of a conservative nature or you have works righteousness of a liberal nature because liberalism is works righteousness liberalism is just different works but regardless if you have a religion focused on human works it will produce an environment where these things happen at least that has been my experience and that may be what is leading the apostle to mention it but uh, it's also possible, and in context, this may be the more likely possibility, uh, it's what happens when you have a religion that focuses on divine grace at the expense of holiness or walking according to God's precepts. If you look at, at what Paul is saying here as he comes in, in the first couple of verses, he says, um, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So it's not just the false teachers that will produce this kind of environment. It is also the Christian who so revels in uh, liberty that he enjoys flaunting his freedom from the law. I am not earning points with God through the law. I'm not earning my way to heaven. Jesus Christ paid for me. There is nothing I pay. Faith is a gift. There is absolutely nothing I contribute but the sin that makes it required. So I'm going to live just a bit worldly. I'm going to think of myself as free from the law as if I am freed from the debt of showing my gratitude to God and living as his citizen. And there are some particularly, quote, reformed manifestations of this that seem very clearly to be the kind of thing that Paul may be thinking about. There is the sovereign grace movement, which... Uh, teaches antinomianism. It teaches that you are freed from the law, the law is inherently a bad thing, uh, performing the deeds of the law are no longer a concern of the Christian, um, walking in the Spirit doesn't have any connection to the precepts of God, uh, enjoy your freedom because you're going to heaven by grace. That produces sick and destructive churches. Uh, that's the evidence of the heresy of it. And this is a focus on grace. This is a focus on freedom. But it's at the cost of God's righteous precepts. There is the reform tendency to rub the nose 
of those who don't understand divine freedom. Let's go to session, and while we have session, let's have a brandy and cigars. Why? Because we can. And technically we can. But why are we doing that? We are coming together as elders of the church to contemplate uh, the mind of the Spirit to lead the congregation. Why would you bring brandy and cigars into that? Well, it's because we can, and they don't think we can, so let's rub their nose in it. And that's the kind of biting and devouring Paul is talking about. It is a very ugly kind of spirit, um, but no matter what avenue you're looking at, it is the result of following the flesh. We have a contrast here in this passage between following the spirit and following the flesh, and all of these things I've been talking about are effectively the flesh leading. What is the opposite of this? Well, the opposite is verse 13 and 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the opposite of walking by the flesh, walking by human works, walking by prideful presumption, walking by pride. You have been redeemed by the Lord Christ for a purpose. Redemption, salvation, is not the end of the process. It is the beginning. You have been called to serve God and specifically to love one another. That can't be done in a works-righteousness kind of approach. It can't be done in a prideful approach. It is only done in the Spirit, and it's what Jesus Christ bought you for. There are some, uh, there are some manuscripts that begin this section with, it was for freedom which Christ has made you free for paraphrasing a little, but that's, that's what the variant says. Um, it certainly has the right emphasis, whether it's the right reading or not. Jesus Christ bought all those who were redeemed to walk in love and to perform the works of love. You are saved to be a blessing. And uh, pride and the arm of flesh won't get you there, It is the summation of the law. Paul says all the law is summed up in one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if we go to Christ in the Gospels, Christ will say, now the greatest commandment in the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here, and in Romans chapter 12, Paul will say the summary of the law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is that a contradiction in Scripture? Well, it depends. Uh, It depends on how you look at the commandment. We live in creation as neighbors 
with all of God's chosen, all of God's people, period. Not even just the chosen, but we, we live as neighbors to people. That's technically true of how we live to God as well. We are called to love each person by giving them their due. If you look at the, the, the catechisms, one of the things that those catechisms emphasize is you should love each person at their particular estate. You will love your boss in a different way than you will love your underling. You will love your child different than you will love your father. But that's because of the estate they're at. You love them in slightly different ways. In a very real sense, you are neighbor to God because you walk in creation with him here as well. And you are to love him by giving him his due. What is the due of God? Well, it is to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So, Paul may be saying, the, the law can be summed up this way because God is a person. We are not Hindus who believe that God is Brahman, an unthinking, unaware, cosmic force that doesn't even know it exists, let alone knows you exist. We believe that God exists as three persons in one essence. And so God is, in a way, our neighbor. And so we should give him his due, just like everybody else, sums up the law. It might also be, as the Amplified puts it in verse 14, for the whole law concerning human relationships is compiled in the one precept, you shall love your neighbor as you do yourself. It doesn't do violence to the original to view it as Paul saying, now, according to this category, according to your neighbor, this sums up the entirety of the law. But it reads a little awkwardly if you do that in the original. Um, You are to love your neighbor, you are to love God, and you walk in creation with God at your side, and above you, and below you, and in you. He is your neighbor as well. But regardless how you take it, The apostle did just say, this sums up the law. He has not been denigrating God's law in any way. He has not been saying the law of God teaches you to do bad things. Now that you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead you to do something different. He is specifically saying, loving God and your neighbor sums up the law, and he will talk about the fruits of the Spirit, and how does he end that section? Against these things, there is no law. Paul holds a very high view of God's law. He wants Christians to walk according to what they find in God's law. He just doesn't want them to relate to God on the basis of how well they do that. The law is holy, righteous, and good. And Jesus Christ has purchased you to love father and to love neighbor. And this sums up the law. You are going to walk in the same actions. You're going to walk in the same way as the law describes if you live out the purpose that Jesus Christ purchased you for. Where does the power for that come from? 
Verse 14 would have us to live in such a way. Verse 15, which I began with, would have us avoid something. Uh, Where's the power for it? Well, that's verse 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. (coughs) There was a famous Russian writer whose name always gets me tongue-tied, Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, I can't do it. But you know who he is, and you know what he wrote, and he wrote some very profound books, and there's some very profound quotes by him. But Dostoevsky considered himself a Christian, but he said, Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount gave us the highest moral ethic that has ever been given, and religion is about walking according to the Sermon on the Mount. He made Matthew chapter 5 through 7 effectively his Bible. This is what God wants us to do. Christ summed it up. I am going to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, and I will be a good Christian. If you know anything about Dostoevsky's life, it's an absolute ruin. It is a total breaking of everything you will find in the Sermon on the Mount, He's uh, adulterous, he's betraying, he's conniving. Uh, there's, there's, there's dark patches of, of evil that characterize his life. But he honestly, truly wants to walk according to the Sermon on the Mount, and desiring to walk that way is commendable. But what he did was he cut himself off from the power to do it. Moral obedience in scripture powered by the flesh fails Paul says walk in the spirit then you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh the corollary of that is if you don't walk in the spirit what's going to happen you are going to fulfill the lusts of the flesh It's possible to be alive in Christ, alive in the Spirit, and not walk in the the Spirit. That may seem like a, a rather shocking statement, but it's not mine. In our very passage, Paul says in verse 25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It is possible to be a redeemed soul. It is possible that Christ has bought you and you don't walk in the Spirit. And if you don't walk in the Spirit, what happens is the last verse, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That sounds a lot like verse 15, and for good reason. Paul is returning to the same theme. He's talking about the destructive behaviors among men that will take place if we walk in the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. We may not do that. 
you know the parable of the sower. It's a famous passage. Uh, Christ is basically talking about himself, and secondarily he's talking about evangelists. And the, the sower goes out and he sows the seed, and you've got four different types of, of soil that receive the seed, and the last soil is commended, it's the good soil, it's ready for the seed, you know the parable. You also know the first two types of soil are obviously unconverted people. They, they, their soil has not been prepared to receive the seed, and when Christ describes them, he is clearly describing people the gospel doesn't penetrate. Uh, the, the, the soil along the path is all hardened, the seed never sinks in, the, the soil on the very shallow part of the field uh, is really just as hard as the soil on the path, but you don't see it. It's very, very shallow. The seed doesn't sink in. It doesn't have its power. It dies off just like the seed on the path. But the third kind of soil, are they converted people or are they not? In Mark chapter 4, uh, this is the, the material dealing with the third kind of soil. It's verse 7, and then it's also verse uh, 18 and 19. And some seed fell among thorns, and the, th- and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Jumping to verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. For the life of me, I can't tell if these are saved people or not. I go back and forth. The seed has produced a plant in this place, but all the weeds have choked out the fruit. There's no fruitfulness here. So, redeemed or unredeemed. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, there's a a very picturesque passage where the apostle talks about dogs returning to their own vomit. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, 19 to 22. Beginning with talking about false teachers, after they have escaped, uh, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, so these are people that have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Are these people redeemed? It's kind of a similar thing. Uh, the apostle talks about them having been freed. The, the apostle talks about them having been delivered from being imprisoned. 
But then he talks about them being enslaved again. And Paul has used the same kind of language. He has said that false teachers have snuck in privily to spy out the freedom we have in Christ and to bring us again into bondage. What happens if you and I, converted person, get entrapped into bondage? Can that happen? Well, yeah, it kind of can. You hit your 50s or higher, and you've lived a good long time. And you've had the ability to watch people walk in the Lord for a good long time. And there are people who have walked beside you in the Lord whom the Lord has sanctified, has deepened their faith, has, has improved them over time. They are treasures to you that you cannot describe. But there's a much larger group of people. And that's people who have walked beside you in the Lord and they made a profession of faith in Christ, and at the time, uh, it seemed very sincere and real, and they really wanted to glorify the Lord. But as time has gone on, they become less and less uh, discernible from the world. To the point where now when you relate to them, you're not sure if you're relating to a believer or not. Maybe you are. Every now and then there's, there's a glimpse of it. <clears throat> But it's really very pathetic. If they're redeemed, it's even more pathetic. Because the Lord Christ has redeemed them to be a blessing. He has redeemed them to love their brother, to use their gifts and ministry, to be a blessing to the world. And in bondage to the world, that's not happening. In reality, it is worse for them to be in this state than to have never been converted at all. At least on a certain subjective level. Because unconverted people are at peace. That may seem to be an odd statement, but it's really true. Most people think of religion, Christian religion, as I'm seeking inner peace. I I want to have calm inner contentment that's not going to happen if you're converted in the second part of this passage Paul tells us to walk in the spirit and then he tells us that if you walk in the spirit you're walking in a war zone because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh This keeps you from doing what you want. You are at war internally. The spirit pulling you towards God's kingdom, the flesh resenting it, fighting it all the way, nevertheless, if you walk in the spirit, you will not accomplish the lust of the flesh. The unconverted person has nothing of that. The unconverted person may have a certain dark sense of emptiness, but he doesn't have that kind of fight. He is a sinner. He has always been a sinner. He's not a converted person. Uh, He's kind of comfortable being a sinner. It is only when the Lord intervenes you become uncomfortable with being a sinner. And when you are converted and brought into Christ, that's when the shooting really starts. 
Religion is a matter of peace, but it is not a matter of inner peace. It is a matter of being at peace with the Lord, being at peace with your Creator. Proper Christianity will produce that peace. But when you are at peace with the Lord, you will be at odds with His enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. When you were occupied territory, they didn't bomb you. Because they had you. They had you when you were born. They had you in the sinful nature. They had you in your unconverted state. But when you are alive in the Spirit, and when you're walking in the Spirit, that's when they bomb you. That's when the fighting starts. We need the strength of God to fight the wars of God. Because the flesh is both dead and not. There is an an interesting passage in one of Paul's other epistles, in the epistle to the Romans. In chapter 6, Paul begins by telling us, if you are a a believer, uh, your flesh has been crucified. It's it's dead. Uh, Let me read it, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it sounds very much like Paul is saying, you're converted, your sinful self is dead, You're dead to it. It's gone. Jesus walks completely free of sin. You should do that too. And in fact, consider yourself dead to sin. Done deal, right? Well, the next verse is, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your sinful self is dead, you're dead to it, done deal. Now, don't let it rule you. Even the greatest uh, tyrants in history have not been able to pull off ruling from the grave. So, why can Paul talk like this? There's an interesting fact about crucifixion. The Romans considered themselves a very civilized people. 
they considered themselves not barbarians. And one of the things that barbarians did was they tortured people. And the Romans didn't want to be barbarians, so there were actually very strong laws about you don't torture living people. But then you had crucifixion, and crucifixion puts biologically living people on a stick, uh, impales them, and they live for several days usually, which is highly torturous. And the Romans did that all the time, so how could they do that and have a very strong law that said you don't torture living people? Well, it was very easy because Roman law said those sentenced to crucifixion were legally considered dead the moment they took up the crossbeam. When they went out to the, to the field to be crucified, as far as Roman law was concerned, they were already dead. You can do anything you want to to the dead. And so they could suffer all day long on the cross, and you weren't torturing a living person, you weren't torturing a dead person. And they were pretty dead because they were totally powerless. If you're nailed to a piece of wood dangling in the air, you can't do nothing but talk. But you could talk, and in fact, in the narrative of Christ's crucifixion, you've got two men crucified with him, one on either side, and what do we read that they do? We read that they revile and heap abuse on him. Now later, one of them repents and is converted, but these are talking men on the cross. They're able to taunt, cajole, lie, manipulate. They just can't actually do anything. And so in a very real sense, they are dead, and in a very real sense, they can seduce. And that seems to be what Paul is thinking of when he writes Romans 6. In Jesus Christ, your sinful self is nailed to a cross. It is legally dead. It can't make you do anything, but it can connive, cajole, seduce, convince. It can lead you into the darkness. It can still rule you because its death is the death of crucifixion. Here, in our passage, uh, that seems to be the sort of thing that Paul is getting at. He is calling us to walk in the Spirit and not walk by the flesh. The flesh is dead, but it can rule. The Spirit has been given to us. The Spirit dwells in us, but we can not walk by the Spirit. We can kick against the goats. Paul is saying, walk by the Spirit. And it's only where you see believers walking by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, using Paul's language, that you actually see religious bodies where you would want to live. I I don't know how you feel about this, but I have lived a life of what some people call organized religion, It's actually a a comical phrase because I have never seen religion actually organized. But nevertheless, I have lived inside of organized religion and many, many congregations are not places I want to live. It doesn't really matter what they're called on the outside door. They're places I don't want to live because they're not where people are walking in the Spirit. But I've also seen 
a number of congregations where they do walk in the Spirit, and it's very obvious, and quite frankly, I don't mind living there. I'd like to. And that is where Paul is focusing his conversation now. He's talking about what kind of religious family do you want to live in? If you want to live in a family where everybody is trying to uh, pull themselves up by their actions and be approvable to God, you're going to be a terrible place. If you live among believers who walk in the Spirit, you're going to be in a good place. It's as simple as that. And he goes on to say, you can tell who's walking in the Spirit by the moral qualities they uh, present in their life. The works of the flesh, Paul says, are obvious. I had an associate minister who was a remarkable Bible teacher and knew far more, he, he had forgotten far more by the time I met him than I will ever know. He was, was a genius. But when he would come to this kind of passage, he would literally take each little sin listed and would give a sermon on each one. When he was preaching through Romans, he got to the end of chapter 1, and it took him about a year to go through every last sin that Paul mentioned. And I honestly think he totally kind of missed the point. Because... Paul gives these lists of sin, gives this list of sins, but then he ends it with and such like, which means there's a lot more here than I just mentioned. And he says the works of the flesh are obvious, which seems to mean they don't really need belaboring. We know they're the works of the flesh. Each human being has a conscience. Even the unbelievers have a conscience. It's corrupted. But if you go to Romans chapter 2, we're told that the Gentiles have the law of God inside to a certain level because the law is written on their hearts. That's the human conscience. How do you know who's walking in the Spirit? You know by the fruit of their lives. There are either the works of the flesh, and these are obvious. You can play word games Scholars in universities can try to change the meaning of the term adultery. Uh, they can try to change the meaning of stealing, what have you. But average people, the works of the flesh are obvious, and you see them. Or you see the fruits of the Spirit. And I would point out to you that Paul's changing of language there is very significant. What are the evidences of the flesh? They are the works of the flesh. But what is the evidence of the Spirit? It is the fruit of the Spirit. So in both categories, who's doing what? In the works of the flesh, the flesh is working. In the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit is producing. And Paul says, walk in the Spirit. What does walking in the Spirit look like? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. These things actually are fairly straightforward too. And they are what living out the law produces. Paul says the law and the fruits of the Spirit are not antithetical at all. They are in fact the same actions. But those who walk in the Spirit are powered by the Spirit and they don't do anything the law condemns. Because these things are what God wants in his law. 
One of the things that, and, and I oftentimes from the pulpit will point out places where the Reformed faith has been hypocritical or weak. I do that intentionally because that's the home team, and nobody but the home team is currently here. So preaching at Methodist doesn't really do much. But one of the things that as Reformed believers we have uh, emphasized in history, and rightly so, and this was truly, truly the truth, is the evidence of the Holy Spirit and walking in Him is not a matter of special effects. It's not a matter of speaking in tongues. It's not a matter of receiving prophecy. It's not a matter of laying out of hands and healing people. Now, I'm not saying that those things can't happen or that the Spirit can't do them. But I'm saying that in Scripture, the overt evidence of the presence of the Spirit is not those things, but the moral change of the believer. Because the moral change of the believer is actually a bigger miracle than all those rather petty things. When God takes hold of a descendant of Adam and mutes his sinful nature and brings him into sanctification and he was described as Paul describes him in Titus chapter 3 talking about Christians who have been changed Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's who we were before conversion. That's all human beings are, when God takes hold of someone like that and the Spirit begins to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control, that is a far more profound miracle than merely healing a disease. It is a far more profound miracle than having a word of knowledge. The truth is those things can't be faked. Whereas the special effects things can. And Paul says, regardless of whether he's talking to them embracing the heresy or whether he's talking about them walking in the flesh because of pride, he is telling them, you won't have these things unless you walk in the Spirit. The Spirit is present. The Spirit is uh, is given to the church, but walk in him. It's active. Walk in him, and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's the apostle's prescription for all moral ills. Walk in the spirit. God empowered, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh.